Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on Donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. Most of our Dharma talks with congratulating you and making it to the end of another day. But as you know, today is a special day. (laughs) The end of the final full day of retreat. So uh, I give you congratulations for that. And for waking up in every world that has shown up so far. Soon you will be moving into a different world, seemingly. Your daily life world. Your other home. Where people probably don't produce small bowls of fruit and soup on tables for you. (laughs) At mealtime to serve silently and eat. So some questions come up for people sometimes. What's the relationship of what we've been doing here in the retreat to going home? And what is the practice that I can do uh, to continue this? So what does this mean in the waking up in every world? Uh, This world, the world that I'm going back to, the worlds that I've conjured during so many hours of sitting and thought about and imagined and planned. So tonight I hope to share a little bit about this um, with you and to shed some light on some aspect of Dharma. So first thing is to look at what we have been doing here. So there's many different perspectives on what we have been doing here. We've been doing a contemplative practice here, meditation practice, that's one part of the path of waking up. It's one portion of the prescription, if you will, from the Buddha uh, for awakening. So it's helpful to remember this because sometimes we can get attached to the form of the intensive meditation practice and feel like when I go home, whatever I do there is going to be lesser than. Um, But actually this is one segment, maybe three of the eightfold path links have been being practiced most intensively here. Uh, So I'll talk with you more about those uh, as well. So I like to always start by talking about the Dharma. You know, what is this Dharma? We took refuge in the Dharma and uh, this Dharma that we've been practicing and that I'm encouraging you to continue to practice also um, when you go home. And One of my favorite translations of the Dharma is of the truth of the way things are, or nature. So in some ways our practice is waking up to nature, waking up to what is actually true uh, about our lives, about who we are, about time, about space, about what we call reality. And the good news about this waking up to the truth of the way things are is that what the Buddha was teaching about is actually something that we can see. It's not like an esoteric philosophy that he cooked up that now we're trying to like, memorize and then uh, figure out and you know, apply in these strange ways. Like, it actually is there in every moment for us to see that which we need to see to be completely awakened. It doesn't require a special moment. It doesn't even necessarily require being on retreat, although doing a lot of practice is more conducive sometimes to that. So as we practice and as we develop wisdom, you could say in some ways that we start to align ourselves more uh, clearly and more fully with the truth of the way things are. And before this point, we live in misalignment. We live out of harmony. And this is what causes uh, dukkha, so strain, stress, suffering, a kind of added friction in life is because we don't see clearly uh, what is the nature of things. And so then we live out of alignment with this. So a lot of the, the questions people were asking and the things that have, you talked about in the uh, meetings have been about kind of your experiments in understanding this and seeing this in your own patterns, seeing this in your own uh, experience and observation. And this is extremely helpful because it, it is one thing to hear it and it's another thing to know this directly through your own experience. 
So this includes all the different experiments that have happened uh, for you, uh, the ones that you have uh, seemingly intentionally uh, taken on, and the ones that seem to have been uh, taken on you (laughs) during this journey. So uh, uh, akin to this dharma is some physical laws, for example, that we learn through our lives. And aligning ourselves with the dharma is kind of like learning different things that we already have learned in some way. And one example uh, that I think is apt is about the law of gravity. So understanding the law of gravity. So the law of gravity is not something that we're born knowing. And sometimes you'll see babies uh, experiment or playing with the law of gravity. So they'll be in a high chair and they'll be eating their food uh, and they'll start to drop things off the high chair and watch them fall. And, um, and I'm going to use big props so that everyone can see in the back. So you know, you like drop something and then, oh, look, it fell to the ground. And then, like, what if I do it on this side? You know, like, oh. <laughs> so same thing, right? And then, what if I do it and I'm not looking? <laughs> same thing, right? So then after a while, you get the sense, you get the picture from observation. Uh, the babies do, and we all did. Like, oh yeah, if you drop something, then it seems to be inexorably drawn to the ground. You don't even know why that is. You don't have to know the word's law of gravity. You don't have to know the mathematical equation for it. You just understand that's what's going to happen. And so then you learn to live in alignment with that. So then if I want to place something, it's better for me not to place it in midair, because I think it's going to fall, right? So I understand that, and to live in harmony with that is to place, for example, all these papers and the book and the clock on this bench. And if I didn't, there would be a lot more messes. There would be broken clock and papers scattered all over and so on. And it's just because of living out of alignment with the way things are, right? So even if by accident sometime, like this gets knocked off, it falls, and then I will remember, like, oh yeah, okay. You don't even have to think about it in words. Like, you know why that happened, and then you can just pick it up and put it back. So it's minus, it doesn't have to have any added friction of taking it personally. You know, like, why me? Why did that happen to me? <laughs> right? Why now? Why? You know? So you don't, you know, with the law of gravity, things, things happen sometimes. They fall, you drop a glass or something, and then you can just sweep it up, and you don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about it, figuring it out. You know, you sort of integrate that into your uh, experience and your way of life. And so and you could consider in some ways like being fully awakened is like being completely aligned with the truth of the way things are. You know, knowing that so deeply that you naturally act in accordance with that. Which means understanding the way in which we're connected to others and not harming people. Uh, not even seeing others as others. You know, having a, a real sense of the, the unity of all of us as being living, living beings. In some ways, it's also obliterating our usual way of going about the world in which we are the center. You know, we are the center of every story and everyone else are props in our drama. Yeah. So we get decentered in some way, but also re-centered in everything in a way that actually leads to a more happy and harmonious and contented life, no matter what is happening. So now in the retreat setting, it's an... Uh, artificial, or it's an unusual way of living, and um, maybe I should have told you this earlier, but one of the, <laughs> one of the dimensions, I feel like, of the container of retreat uh, is actually to reveal suffering. It's actually to reveal dukkha. And even in the very sitting posture that we take for one period of half an hour, 45 minutes, we're like, let's sit here and see if we can be present with whatever it is that arises, regardless of what that is, whether that's physical, mental, if it's painful, if it's pleasant. And very quickly it reveals, on the first level, things that we don't want to have happen. So it reveals painful bodily sensations. Right? Different uh, mental states arise that we don't want to have there. Uh, different memories might come up uh, that we don't like to uh, feel. So now usually in our life we'll get up and do something and call someone or uh, go watch TV or get a drink or something. But here, it's very courageous, you know, even just taking one sitting, taking a, a vow, if you will, to just sit here and do your best to be steady with whatever it is that arises. And from that, we expand our ability 
to know what this life is. We also can expand our ability to see the uh, aspects of uh, the truth in this. Like, what, what are the characteristics of that which we call myself and my life? So in the previous nights, this has been discussed. So Eugene was talking about impermanence. So we notice that everything that arises passes away. You know, just like every weather system that comes has passed away. Every internal weather system that's come has passed away. Every thought that's come has passed away. Everything that we call our physical body is constantly arising and passing away. So as we can see that more and more, then we learn to live with that as a deep understanding and thus not cling to things that are impermanent and that are not ours, that are under our control and can live a freer life. So the Buddha says, give up what does not belong to you. Trying to possess what is fleeting and defies ownership causes grief. So give up what does not belong to you. It makes sense, right? It makes sense to do that. And yet we live in a kind of illusion of what it is that belongs to us. And who is this me that has the possibility of ownership, of this body, of experience, of this life, of anything? So here on retreat, we've been practicing developing clarity of focus, uh, collecting our attention, and then applying that to see clearly and in greater detail than we usually can when we're distracted by other things. Uh, What is the nature of the physical body, of mental states, uh, even of awareness itself? As you leave the retreat and you go back to your um, regular life, you probably will find that the conditions of your life are not as conducive to concentration and collectedness, unless you happen to live in a retreat center also. (laughs) So the first thing I'd like to uh, recommend to you is to not feel like it's a failure or you're a failure or it's all wasted if you find particularly that that amount of collectedness seems to be frittering away even as you turn on to Sir Francis Drake and uh, drive away. So one of the teachings is also about causality, part of the Dharma teachings that we can align ourselves, is that everything uh, comes together because of different causes and uh, conditionality. And so understanding this can help bring some freedom too. So the conditions of the retreat center are oriented towards this kind of more detailed, uh, intensive, deep-to-detailed practice that we call vipassana, insight meditation. But that does not mean that when you leave the retreat, it's not possible to continue to see clearly or to practice dhamma, or that this practice of alignment, this process of alignment has to stop. So we can continue to apply the formulas that we have learned and continue to investigate our lives and the way the world presents it to ourselves Uh, in ways that can allow wisdom to arise, that can allow insight to arise. So also I'd like to note, sometimes people refer to the uh, retreat as one thing, and then um, they tend to talk kind of colloquial about when I go back to my real life. And it's funny to make a distinction like that, because oftentimes in our uh, real life, we're actually much more entranced than when we are on retreat and all of our usual props are taken away and we've been cultivating the ability to be present. So just a question, what is real life? You know, where is real life and what is the world? These waking up in different worlds, you know, what are, what are these different worlds and how do we hold them? So I'll remind you also of the story that uh, Howie had talked about with Rohitasa, our friend Rohitasa, who had very poignantly asked the Buddha, is it possible by traveling to reach the end of this cosmos where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away, or reappear? 
And then when the Buddha said, no, it's not possible about traveling, he was very relieved, right? Because he was like, oh, that makes me feel uh, like much better because I actually tried to find it by traveling and I didn't get there. So, you know, he's thinking maybe I didn't travel the right direction, I wasn't diligent enough, but no, it's not possible. But then the Buddha says, but (laughs) there is no making an end of dukkha without reaching the end of the cosmos. But in this very fathom-long body is the cosmos, the origin of the cosmos, the cessation, and the path to that. So this this dukkha is what has been uh, revealed, and you have the equipment here, and you're taking this equipment also into your uh, out-of-retreat life. So you can feel happy that you still will have all of the lab equipment you need uh, to continue the experiment. And sometimes the experiment is one of opening to more and more suffering. Opening to more and more suffering on the individual basis. And then actually opening to more and more suffering in the world too. So as Eugene was saying, the, the Buddha's recommendations around uh, the practice of mindfulness in the Satipatthana talks about cultivating mindfulness internally and externally. And sometimes in the mundane world of our lives, uh, this reflections and cultivating externally can be extremely helpful, particularly for popping us out of a certain self-centeredness that we might have or an absorption that can come upon us when we're entranced, when we're in this state of delusion. So you could say that in the Vipassana practice, when we're developing deeper concentration, we can see more momentary arisings. It kind of breaks us out of our usual idea of who we are. So that's kind of going micro in order to do that. It also is possible to break that up by going macro, if you will. So by going wide angle. So breaking our usual lens on here's me as the star of the story and everyone else around me. And me and my suffering, me and my problems, me and my uh, story of the past, me and my story of the future, to actually take a look of all those others around us. So an easy example of this is um, being stuck in traffic. (laughs) This happens as a general uh, (laughs) state of suffering in the Bay Area frequently. Whether you're uh, like in a crowded BART car or you're stuck on the bridge or the 101. Um, many, many hours spent in this time. And one of my favorite um, billboards that I've seen about this is, uh, it was actually for a bicycle coalition, and it said, um, you are not stuck in traffic, you are traffic. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, wait, I thought everyone else was traffic. <laughs> and I was the one trying to get home, but... Oh. Maybe that person also is trying to get home and they're referring to me in the same way. Like, oh. (laughs) So kind of as simple as that sometimes, it's just shifting our perspective in a way that can hold like, oh, we're part of this larger thing going on here. And one of the dimensions of this larger thing going on here is uh, actually unpleasantness. So it's it's an easy trap to fall into in one's practice, both on retreat and outside retreat, that we think uh, better and better practice and better and better life, better and better progress is making things more pleasant for me. You know, making things more comfortable. Uh, And actually sometimes it's the opposite. You know, being, uh, having the discomfort revealed uh, and being able to open to that discomfort Uh, can actually be a positive thing in this path of awakening. So this is the first noble truth, is uh, recognizing that there is dukkha, there is suffering, there is strain, stress, birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair. Life is full of not getting what you want and being put in close proximity to what you don't want. Life is full of not getting your way. And it actually is not going to change. It's not going to change if you get enlightened. <laughs> it's not going to change if you become a gooder person. <laughs> you know, the, the nature of our world is that there's going to be pleasure and pain 
and people are going to say things you like and say things you don't like. And sometimes the weather will be good and sometimes the weather will be bad and on and on like that. So it's helpful to notice when our tendency is to think like, oh, bad things are happening to me and that must mean that uh, there's something wrong. Or, uh, or to go back to the, like, why me, why now kind of perspective on that. Yeah. And I can almost guarantee that any time you're in some state of woe, whatever that is, if you reflect on it and kind of go to this wide angle, you could actually realize you're probably part of a fellowship of suffering around that particular thing. So the fellowship of flat tires, yeah. bicycle or car. Uh, the fellowship of being sick, the fellowship of breakups, the fellowship of those who are going through uh, losing a job, the fellowship of those who have had a good day, the fellowship of those who have had a bad day, the fellowship of those who have been diagnosed with a terminal illness, actually on the same day, the fellowship of people who know a loved one who has died. So when any of these things happen to us, particularly the bad things, I would say, we we tend to collapse in to this sense of here's me and here's my story and suffer more, you know, add on suffering through our story of self-absorption. There's a a well-known story in the um, Buddhist uh, canons of this, of kind of a going wide angle, the Buddha's teaching on going wide angle. Uh, And it's about a woman named Kisa Gotami, who uh, had a very unfortunate thing happen to her. So her baby died. And actually in some of the backstory to the story, uh, it also has like her husband dying and another child dying. But at the point where the story really picks up, She's walking around with her, the corpse of her infant, but she hasn't been able to accept yet that uh, this baby is dead. And so she's going around asking everyone, um, can you give me medicine for my baby? But the baby is already dead. You know, and people are telling her, like, the baby's dead. It's crazy. And so finally someone's like, oh, go talk to the Buddha. Right? So she comes to the Buddha and says, uh, can you give me some medicine to uh, help my baby? And he says, uh, okay. Uh, I want you first to go to the home of, uh, go to someone's home and get a mustard seed, just one mustard seed from the home of uh, someone. And she's like, mustard seed, great. He says, wait, but someone (laughs) who uh, has not experienced death uh, in that house, in that family. So then she goes to the first one, knocks on the door, says, can I have a mustard seed? And they say, okay. And then she says, but wait, did anyone die here? And they say, oh yeah, Uh, actually the grandmother died. then she's go to the next one and can I mustard seed? Yeah. Uh, oh, did, did anyone die here? And it's like, oh yeah, actually, um, my brother died. So, so like this, on and on she goes, house to house to house to house, until finally, she realizes this universality. You know, this is the the teaching: is that oh, actually, uh, that which I have been so ab- absorbed in this way is the nature of things. You know, all of us are born to die, and that all of us have these different tragedies that are there. So it doesn't bring the baby to life, but it actually frees her from the added layer of suffering and delusion that she had. And it's said that then she goes to the Buddha and uh, she's been kind of freed from that level of madness and she ordains and um, later becomes uh, awakened, fully awakened. So we can always practice this, you know, considering like, oh, there's this thing that's going on and like... um, try to pop out of our our cloistered way of looking at it. Try to open up. And then that also can bring us into a sense of compassion and kindness for others, too. So there's some questions, too, about, you know, what is the relationship of this practice, which seems so individual, to our collective liberation? And does it necessarily mean that we're doing good things, that we're practicing... uh, here or even when I go home, there's so many important things to be done. And is it worth it to take the time uh, to sit, to practice? 
So this may be a doubt that comes to you sometimes, you know, when, you're, when you leave here. It's easier when there's peer pressure, right? A hundred people coming in, a bell ringing. <laughs> More often you, you tend to come and sit for 45 minutes. But at home, yeah, and like, how do you deal with that doubt that comes up? And for me, I've been involved in many different uh, kind of campaigns or uh, movements for social justice and involved in various kinds of enterprises trying to create things. And there was a sense of urgency around whatever it is that we're building or doing. Uh, so I understand this question. You know, I understand this question and the way in which the currents of the world kind of push you forward into action. And they don't actually encourage you to take this time to cultivate yourself or even take the perspective uh, in this way. So one metaphor sometimes I like to tell people, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, you could keep working all the time, but if that's the case, if you shouldn't take out time to uh, practice or reflect, then maybe you shouldn't take any time to sleep too. You know? So sleeping also could be perceived to be a waste of time. There's so much to be done. But, you know, if you don't sleep, like, you kind of go crazy. You could still continue to work for some time, but you probably make a lot of mistakes. You get really cranky. Uh, and actually, it's not very good for your mental health. And so, all in all, it's good to sleep. Right? It's good to sleep. And most of us don't get enough sleep, I understand, you know, in the U.S., but uh, can consider, like, yes, yeah, sleeping is an essential part of uh, being able to be functional in the world. So bringing my best uh, efforts to whatever my work is, my uh, family, my life. So similarly, I'd say there's something about um, prioritizing dharma practice. And it doesn't have to just mean meditation, but just to uh, consider investing some of your efforts, some of your time uh, in some way. And we'll talk about you know what this looks like, uh, can look like in your life too. Uh, in this enterprise. And I would say that just like in the intensive meditation practice, actually awareness itself is not enough. So here's where, you know, we've provided various kind of lenses or things to look at, like, oh, look at the, the body. We kind of went building block, like the body and then the emotions and thoughts and mind. Uh, and then see if you can notice the impermanence of that. Can you reflect? Is there a way that uh, this is uh, governable by myself? You know, so is seeing the characteristics. So there's sort of an analytical lens that has been being presented through all of the Dharma talks and teachings here. And similarly, I'd say in looking at how can we bring ourselves to whatever kind of collective liberation there is, I think it both requires us to nourish ourselves with sleep, with food, uh, with good uh, company around us so we're healthy and with our own individual practice. And then we also have to apply some other lenses of analysis to understand the suffering that is there uh, in society or to understand the suffering that is there in a particular arena. So here's an example. Uh, someone I have heard about recently who I admired very much her, um, what she had done. I had never heard of her before. So someone named Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha. And she's the director of pediatrics at the Children's Hospital in Flint, Michigan. So Flint, Michigan, uh, many of you have heard, uh, had uh, maybe a couple of years ago, they had uh, the, their city government was taken over right, by the state. And then uh, they were switched from their uh, previous water source to a polluted, contaminated water source from the Flint River. Um, but there was all this denial that there was a problem with the water, even though the residents were saying the water's coming out of the tap and it's brown and it smells bad. And, and um, So the government officials were like, no, no, it's fine, or we'll, we'll, we'll be testing it in six months, and so on. The residents knew there was something wrong. It was a very poor town. Um, a lot of people of color in the town, and the, it was basically a cost-saving thing and an easy, uh, easier thing to do than to, to uh, test the water right then. So this, th there were some studies done, there were EPA studies that showed that there was lead in the water, but again, the state government was glossing over this. 
and saying that's not true. And then this one uh, pediatrician, the director of pediatrics, she uh, had heard about this. And so she looked into the levels of lead in the children's blood. And they had uh, tests for all of the young children uh, right before the water source was changed and then after. And she said they saw two and three times the level of lead in the children's blood. And here's where the kind of heroic thing comes in, is that apparently usually the methodology would be that uh, they would have to get this published in a medical journal and accept it in the magazine, and then once the magazine come out, then they could do a, a press conference or about it or something. And she said, you know, this was just too urgent. Like, we couldn't go through those steps. So they immediately had a press conference and announced this and showed their results. And uh, she and her colleagues were widely decried, like that it was bad research, that they were just trying to get attention, uh, and the state tried to shut it down. Over and over, she heard you know, that her career was going to be in jeopardy. And then finally, after some time, it came out that, in fact, yes, it was true. What the residents were saying and what these data studies were saying was, in fact, true. And so now the state is having to take responsibility for that. And she said, you know, yeah, my job is to pay attention to the child that's in front of me. You know, she's a pediatrician. But she also had a public health background. And she said, but also it's important to me that the conditions are there for the health and well-being of these children. And so she said it was the easiest study she had ever done. Like, you know, the evidence was like right there and so obvious. Uh, and she was like, I, I, I couldn't sleep, she said. You know, she, in the interviews with her, she seemed like just such a good person. You know, she was just like, I couldn't sleep. Like, this was terrible. And this is my job. Like, even a little bit of lead. There's no, no safe level of lead for children or adults. And this is going to impact their development. And I had to get this information out there right away to try and stop this. Yeah. So she saw a problem. There's the suffering. And then look the cause of the suffering. And then given her own specific area of expertise... Uh, she brought the truth out. You know, she brought the truth to light at risk to her own career uh, and uh, personal life. So there are many examples of this you know, in the world, and we're all in some kind of different corner, corner of the, the world that we work in or that we reside in. And partly I think it's, it helps us in our practice also to start to expand our view, you know, expand our view out from our uh, little neighborhood or what we're up to and um, take a broader look in some way. So there's another example of, uh, so recently on the East Coast, they've had a lot of snow and um, we can be grateful, uh, even though we've had some rain, that we didn't get blizzards here. So there's a family in New Jersey, Paramus, New Jersey, that... um, the dad is an engineer, and they decided to uh, create on their own like the best environmental house that they could. And so four years, they've been working on this since 2011, and finally they've like kind of unveiled it. So they have solar panels, and then they uh, melt the snow that comes in uh, and catch all the rainwater and uh, use the water to pipe it under the driveway to melt the snow. Uh, and pipe it through the walkways, and then also use that water that's caught from the snow and the rain for uh, laundry and for uh, flushing their toilets uh, and for heating the house. So their house has no furnace, no AC, no hot water heater, um, complete redesign, uh, and also something they've done at their own expense to figure this out. But now they're sort of unveiling this as an example of the kind of houses we could have here, you know, the way that we could have some interaction with uh, the sun and the water in a way that's um, better for us. So it's brilliant. Like, I wouldn't have thought of that. But, you know, each of you have some area in which you are doing work and there's something like, oh, I could pay attention to this. Like, what is it that is uh, being brought forth from me? What is it that seems to be some area for attention also? And sometimes this process requires us becoming uncomfortable, too. Many times it does, as it did for uh, Dr. Mona. So there's other cases in um, movements now of uh, highlighting the way in which racism continues to play out in our country. And... 
some of the evidence that's come to light has been there all the time, but just because we have more technology, so things can be filmed now, uh, there's evidence of the kind of uh, killing of young black men that happens uh, without provocation. And also the way in which that gets covered up. And it's very painful to face that, right? It's painful to face that as a society. Uh, but here again, it's like some, let us understand the causality of this. You know, can we bring this to light? Can we face discomfort uh, as a society? So I was reading uh, recently this book by um Hissi Coates, um, who just won uh, the MacArthur Fellowship, a National Book Award um, between the world and me. And his, uh, it's a, a really brilliant book that I recommend. He's actually writing to his son, his 15-year-old son, about the experience of being a black man in the United States now. And part of what he talks about is this delusion, sort of like there's this class of dreamers, you know, this idea that America was built, uh, that America is like this, the, the greatest country in the world, and it's minus the recognition that this country was built on slavery. And that actually the brutality and cruelty of that continues on. Actually, it's, it's not an aberrant thing that one or another situation happens where a certain cop kills a certain African-American young man. You know, but actually, this, our country was sort of built on this very notion in some ways. And the, the continuation of our wealth and well-being uh, is due to that, too. So it's very difficult to face that. You know, even as I say this in the meditation hall, you might have difficult, uncomfortable feelings about that. Yeah. And he says this much more eloquently than I do. It's actually a very beautifully written book. Say So here he is talking to his son. Here's what I'd like you to know. In America, it's traditional to destroy the black body. It is actually heritage. Enslavement was not merely the antiseptic borrowing of labor. It's not so easy to get a human being to commit their body against its own elemental interest. And so enslavement must be casual wrath and random manglings, the gashing of heads and brains blown out over the river as the body seeks to escape. It must be rape so regular as to be industrial. There is no uplifting way to say this. I have no praise anthems, nor old Negro spirituals. So this is part of our collective suffering. And it bears more on some of us than the others. But this is all of ours. You know, here's where we have to pull ourselves up from our story of just ourselves or the way in which we want to feel comfortable and acknowledge the ways in which our society, uh, our country is built in this way. Even in our beloved city of San Francisco, as many of you uh, are there, can attest and are on many different sides of this. You know, the disparity of wealth there is uh, huge and is growing, even over the last five, ten years. So apparently we're actually now, uh, according to the Gini coefficient, which uh, measures income inequality, we are somewhere between Rwanda and Guatemala at the moment, very sadly, uh, 0.52, where this... Uh, this is about like uh, the level of inequality of income, like how much it's kind of pooled uh, at the very top and how little people at the bottom have. Uh, so this causes a lot of suffering. You know, this causes a lot of like very basic human suffering for many people. Uh, and it's difficult to see that. And sometimes it's difficult to know, you know, what it is that I personally can do about that. But paying attention to that and applying oneself in even challenging oneself to apply oneself in larger areas uh, is, I think, part of our uh, dharma practice, too. So there is suffering. There's a cause of suffering. It's possible to remove the cause of suffering and the path. So the path includes continuing to clarify our, uh, what's called wise view, right view, samaditi, and that includes both about the Dharma teachings, and I would say even in this collective uh, awakening, you know, what is true about our society? What is true about the conditions of life of our neighbors? Uh, what is true about our world? 
we continue to clarify our intentions. So try as much as possible to live from intentions that are ones of kindness, of compassion, of generosity. So wholesome intentions. We try to pay attention to our actions in the world and our speech. And here we have a whole other chapter of our practice uh, in how we speak to each other, in how we relate to each other's physical bodies, uh, in how we relate to possessions, our own, so to speak, and others, in our relationship to substances and how that impacts our life. So all of this can be taken as a continuation of the retreat, and it's an exciting new chapter as you leave here from the uh, kind of captive and unusual situation of the retreat where you are freeform talking to each other, <laughs> and you do have access to all kinds of different substances, right? and you do have to uh, actually structure your own time in some way. So what are, what, are, what are wise decisions for me to make in this way? And then the continuation of cultivation of uh, the path of mindfulness, the path of collectedness, uh, and the path of wise effort. So sometimes it's said that when you end a retreat, the retreat continues in some other form for the equal number of days. So you're five days here in the retreat center, and then particularly I'd encourage you to pay attention to the first five days you're kind of out. And... Sometimes it's a good opportunity to see the ways that you habitually interact with your life and the habitual decisions that you've made and to have some opportunity to to choose differently. So this could include, um, what are the aspects of my life that are more conducive towards collectedness? And what are the aspects of my life that are not? Even paying attention to the kind of inputs that you take in, you know, through... uh, the news, through uh, web browsing, through movies, both how much and what stuff there. Paying attention to um, how you treat yourself with kindness or not, and how you treat those around you. How much attention you have to pay in both a small circle of your family and then also larger to your community uh, and to the world. So uh, I'll give you a few more things to, to check out. Um, the Buddha said that we frequently have some distortions of view. And the distortions of view include that we take things that are impermanent to be permanent. We take things that are actually painful to be pleasant. We take things that are insubstantial to be ourselves, to be actually some solid unitary, independent, and controlling self. And, interestingly, we take the unbeautiful to be beautiful. So these are four different flavors of delusion that are often there. So you can check this out as you go through. This is like a um, continuation practice. So the Buddha himself did, in some ways, uh, conduct his sangha and um, try to create a, a world in which uh, he did challenge many of the ways that the thing that things uh, were, the ways in which society was living in delusion. So that included uh, the caste system of the time. So when people entered his order uh, as monks or nuns, uh, he had them drop their caste. And this was rad- very radical at the time. The caste system was very entrenched. And in fact, um, some of the like, upper caste uh, monks like, didn't want to hang around with the lower caste monks. But the Buddha felt strongly like all beings have the uh, potential to awaken. And uh, he said in many different ways to those who consider themselves high class or high caste uh, that it was not by birth that you became noble, uh, but by character. So, uh, you know, if they didn't want to hang around with the low-caste people, then it was like, well, that's the way it is, so you're going to get used to it or <laughs> not be here. So, Also somewhat radical at the time is that he allowed the ordination of women to, 
And, and this is when he's asked, you know, is it possible for women to also uh, attain awakening? And he said, yes, it is, completely. So there were uh, sangha of lay people uh, and of ordained people of all genders. Also, there in the teachings that we've been giving here, mostly we've been giving the kind of teachings around meditation, specifically around the meditation practice. But there are a lot of different examples of the Buddha uh, being asked questions by different lay people or even leaders and kings. And if you want for a continued um, learning or study, you could check out some of these kind of conversations. And in among those teachings, he recognized that uh, economic development was actually a good way to reduce crime. And that uh, it was good to have a society that was uh, run by compassion and generosity. That uh, giving people what they needed uh, was uh, the sign of a good ruler. And uh, even occasionally he would uh, suggest to people to, he would in, in, like try to get them not to fight with each other or something like that. But usually they wouldn't listen and they would go fight anyway. But according to this, he said, you know, the victor, the victor breeds hatred and the, defeat, the defeated will live in misery in any fight, in any war. So he who renounces both is the one who is happy and peaceful. Yeah, so on either side, even if, if the victor, like, uh, you're going to be cultivating hatred and breeding this hatred that will come back again to, to uh, cause suffering. So, we begin the next chapter, and you're still here on retreat for the next uh, evening and tomorrow morning, and you could consider it kind of a, the beginning of your transition to this other, uh, other world. So there's been the waking up here, and there's the waking up that's possible in the other world. And if you want to start moving at a little bit more normal pace, you could try that. Uh, but as you do that, just try to stay present and notice, even as you're going around, if there's more thoughts of what I'm going to do when I get home and this or that. Or, um, that's okay. There's just more energy of thoughts. You know, do your best to stay present. Remember to connect with the body. Uh, and in fact, even as you're going about packing your bag and so on and uh, getting ready to leave, this is more akin to the daily activities you have. So you know, can I do that with some sense of presence? Can I do that with some awareness? Uh, notice when you're not, and then just come back again. So everything can continue to be part of your practice. When you go home, you could notice how it is for those around you also. Maybe you want to ask them how they are before you start talking about your retreat. Uh, (laughs) Maybe you want to wait till they actually ask you how it was. (laughs) And even then, uh, just see what feels right to say. You know, level one, you could just say like, it was great, or it was interesting. And then see if they ask a second-level question, then you could tell them the whole uh, detailed version of it. You know. So orienting more towards the listening and generosity already you know, in that way. You may notice that you're more sensitive than you would expect when you go back. Uh, oftentimes you've gotten much more sensitive than you might have expected. And Partly that's the beautiful result of living in a community that's practicing the precepts. Living among people who are not harming each other and not speaking harshly to each other or at all to each other (laughs) Uh, in all this way. So uh, notice that, you know, it's like allow yourself to be that um, open and gentle. Know that uh, you won't be, uh, it it might change, I'll say, (laughs) as you re-enter a different uh, community, but you know, protect that. Be gentle with yourself um, as you go in. And please continue your path because the world needs uh, people who are awake. The extent to which you are also free from greed, hatred, and delusion is the extent to which you can also apply yourself in the world uh, in a way that creates both the results and the process towards the results that are ones that we need. There's a lot of suffering in the world to be tended to. There are a lot of areas for attention. And please continue to expand your vision, 
Notice when you get really comfortable and don't want to move out of that. And challenge yourself sometimes to step a little bit further into seeing the suffering of others as well. And then doing what you can to alleviate that uh, in creative ways uh, as your gifts and talents orient you to do. So thank you for your attention to the Dhamma our last beautiful evening here and I encourage you to make good use of your time. You have a good momentum of practice together. So you can just sit in silence for a moment here. Give up what does not belong to you. Rest in the truth of the way things are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.